Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles tonight and go with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah tonight, Nehemiah chapter 6. And hopefully this evening we will finish out chapter number 6. We've been taking the last few weeks and we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah. We'll finish chapter 6 tonight with the Lord's help. And then we'll jump into chapter 7, chapter 8 next week. Nehemiah chapter 6, we are all the way to the end of the, of the chapter. So you're looking at verse number 17. Verse number 18, verse number 19 tonight. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 17, verse 18, and verse 19. And one thing that we highlighted in this study through chapter number 6 is that there is a natural and spiritual order that is being revealed to us. So it's a, it's a well-known truth that things do not naturally gravitate toward order, instead they naturally gravitate toward disorder. If you, own a, if you own a car, you know this to be true. If you do not maintain your car, if you do not wash your car, if you do not uh, check the oil in your car, if you do not take care of your car, your car does not run better if you neglect all of those things. In fact, your car runs worse, or it won't run at all. If things don't naturally get better, they tend to disorder. They tend to chaos. This is not just true with stuff we have. This is also true in our own lives. If you don't exercise, if you don't eat right, if you don't take care of your body physically, if you aren't making sure that you're having healthy habits, then you're not, you're not going to you're not going to lend, your body isn't going to lend itself to being more fit or you're not going to have more energy. This is a natural thing that happens in this world. But it's not just true physically. It's also, and more importantly true, spiritually. In the spiritual realm, we do not tend toward Christ-likeness. We do not tend toward godliness or holiness. No one just wakes up and just feels more holy today than they felt yesterday. No one accidentally becomes more righteous today than they were yesterday. This is not the way in which it goes in our spiritual lives. We have to nurture godliness. We have to nurture holiness and righteousness be ye therefore holy, as that's, a, that's, a, that's a command, it's a required action. Be sure that you are being holy, remember what he says? Because you're God, your Father, which is in heaven. He is holy. So we have to fight our natural tendencies to cause our spiritual life to deteriorate, to, to cause ourselves to decline, to cause ourselves to drift into disorder. We have to fight that natural tendency. And this is what we're seeing in, in Nehemiah chapter 6. The work is completed. The wall is done. The job is finished. And yet, nowhere in this text do you read the words, and Nehemiah completed the wall and then lived happily ever after. 
Don't you wish it was that simple? You, you, you did what God asked you to do. You went to church this weekend. You helped your neighbor. You gave out the gospel. You helped the poor. You supported some mission work. And you lived happily ever after. Your kids were always obedient. No problems ever at work. It just was simple. That's just not the way that it goes. And that's what we're seeing in this text. So while Nehemiah is used by God to complete this monumental task for which, and we pointed this out last time, for which all the nations that were around them saw and glorified God. Look at verse number 16. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen were about us, saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of God. So they saw what Nehemiah and the Jews were able to do by way of rebuilding the wall, and they glorified God as a result of it. And ultimately, we said this last time, ultimately this is the desire that we have for God from our own lives. That people would see the hard work that we're doing in our marriages. The hard work we're doing in our parenting. The hard work we're doing in our friending. The hard work we're doing in our community. They would see that and then they would glorify God as a result of it. That God would get the glory from our lives. And what you're noticing here, look at the end of that text, verse 16. For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. So they, they see the work done and they go, wow, that has, that has the mark, that has the craftsmanship, that has the signature of God on it. But what we've said in this text is there's another work happening. And the other work that's happening in chapter 6 is there, there is this opposition that has come up against Nehemiah. And it's not just a one prong attack. It's not just attacking Nehemiah from one front. It's over and over and over again. And we said that what you see in Nehemiah chapter 6, you see the devil's schemes. You remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. We're not ignorant of the devil's schemes. We are given in God's word the way in which the devil does his work in our lives and God has given us his word and he has given us these examples for our benefit. So we can see the way the devil works and we can take the appropriate precautions in our lives so that we do not find ourselves falling into Satan's traps and Satan's devices. And I told you this last time we talked. We said that one of the ways that the devil gets us is he piles on. It's just one thing right after the other. Have you noticed that? You, you, you know the saying, when it rains, it pours. It's just one temptation right after the other. It's one bit of bad news right after the other. It's one struggle right after the other. You ever, you ever been to the ocean 
and, and here comes a big wave and you're prepared for it and you see it coming and you're like, okay, I'm going to get ready for that big wave. And that kind of hits you and you're like, wow, that was a big wave. But you didn't see the second wave right behind it. And then that wave hits you, smacks you to the ground. And then another wave and another wave and another. And it's relentless, right? It's just wave after wave after wave. And it causes confusion. And it turns you upside down. And you, you get worn out. You get frustrated. You feel like you're drowning. And sometimes in our lives, this is the exact way that the devil comes after us. It's wave after wave after wave. It's a problem with the kids. It's a problem with your spouse. It's a problem at work. It's this crazy thing on the car. It's this thing that I got to fix at home. It's this thing I got to handle at the office. It's this sickness that I heard about from my family members. It's my parents that are struggling. It's my friends that are hurting. And it's just wave after wave after wave. And eventually you feel as if you just want to give up. You just don't even want to fight it anymore. It's just the resistance to the opposition. It dies inside of you. And you go, ah, what's the point? I just quit. I throw in the towel. And what we're saying, and what's very important to recognize is, Nehemiah has this great spiritual discernment in understanding this is the way the devil attacks. So we said the greatest resistance to spiritual warfare is persistence. The greatest resistance is persistence. The time in which you feel like giving up the most is the time in which you need to just buckle down and keep on pressing on for the Lord. You say, oh, it's just so much. It's piling so high. There's so many problems. You, just, you can't understand wave after wave that's hit me, that's hammering me. I just can't take anymore, I don't think. No, no, no. That is the time in which we need to put our eyes on Christ the most. So I, I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe you're feeling that in your family. Maybe you're feeling that with your medical diagnosis. Maybe you're feeling that with your friendships. Maybe you're feeling that with your job. Maybe you're feeling that in some other way. Maybe you're feeling that in your finances. I don't know. But I'm telling you, this is the scheme of the devil. This is the way in which he works. And God has given to us, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, this book which informs us of the way that he works. And he says, yes, there's a handiwork that you can clearly see is from God. But there is also a handiwork that you can clearly see is spiritual warfare that you and I are engaged in on a daily basis. So how does it look at the end of the text? Notice this. Look at verse 17. So you had, you had all these things. You had this danger that was happening in this text. You had this defamation that was happening against Nehemiah in the text. You had the distraction that was happening against Nehemiah in the text. Look at verse 17. And moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah. Okay, you should circle that, that name, Tobiah. Okay, that should, should ring some bells because we've read about Tobiah already. Let me just put you to test. Let me put you to test on our, on our study, the good work. Is, Nehemiah, is Tobiah a good guy or a bad guy? A thumbs up or a thumbs down? Okay, some of you didn't do anything. You just sat there. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Let's see. Yeah. Okay. He's not in the middle. He's a, he's a thumbs down guy, okay? 
He's a bad guy. He's, this is not a good guy. But notice, the nobles of Judah, good guys or bad guys? No, no, those are good guys. They're, they're inside the wall. They're, they're building the wall with Nehemiah. They're doing work. They're hanging hinges. They're hanging doors. They're putting bricks in place. They're laying mortar. They're getting lumber. They're doing a hard work. But notice, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And the letters of Tobiah came to them. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him. Notice that phrase. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, And his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the, daughter, the son of Berechiah. And they reported his, Tobiah, they reported Tobiah's good deeds before me. The me there is Nehemiah. So they reported, they reported Tobiah's good deeds before Nehemiah and they uttered Nehemiah's words to Tobiah. So Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. So evidently, Tobiah was in cahoots with a number of people inside of Jerusalem. Let me remind you about Tobiah. Tobiah in Nehemiah chapter 2 had attacked Nehemiah on the outside of the wall. He had laughed and scorned and despised Nehemiah and their work in chapter number 4. He created all kinds of confusion in chapter 6 early on. He tried to get Nehemiah to come down and visit him in verse 13 of this text. And now what he is doing is he is attacking Nehemiah in a completely different way. Every other strategy of attack from Tobiah to Nehemiah had been an outside attack. And they hadn't worked. So, so Tobiah changes his strategy. And he goes, okay, if I'm, if I'm attacking Nehemiah from the outside and I can't get him to stop doing this work, then I'm going to attack Nehemiah from the inside. He had attacked him from the outside, but his goal was always to move inside. And how did he do that? How did he accomplish that? You're going to see this in chapter 13 of the book of Nehemiah. You'll see that Tobiah actually takes up residence inside of the temple. We're going to get there in a few weeks from now. Nehemiah goes away on a business trip, and when he comes back, Tobiah has moved into the temple, and there he's living, and he's profaning the house of God. So how does Tobiah go from being an enemy and opposition on the outside to being in cahoots with people in Jerusalem on the inside all the way to chapter 13 where he's moved into the temple? How does he do that? Well, it's, it's found in this phrase. Look at verse 18. He had sworn unto him. So the, there were many in Judah sworn unto him. It's simply, it's simply an understanding of this. He had built these relationships with them and through these contractual relationships, I'll let you marry my daughter, you let me, you know, let, let her marry your son, you can marry my son and he'll marry your daughter. And through these relationships, Tobiah moves from the outside to the inside. This, what, what is this for us then? Here's what it is for us. It's considering the friendships that we have. 
considering the friendships that we have. I don't believe that there is hardly anything in this life outside of salvation that's more valuable than a true friend. In fact, people everywhere, almost without exception, have a desire, a hunger for friendship, real, true, meaningful friendship. This is what we long for. This is what the Bible teaches us we were built for. We were built, made for relationship. But what this passage is showing us is that not all friendship, not all friends are created equal. There are some friendships which are not good relationships. There are some friendships which do not move us closer to the Lord in the direction of godliness, in the direction of holiness, in the direction of righteousness, but instead they move us away. They say, well, well, pastor, of course that's true, but this is, this is a sermon that you should be preaching to teenagers, not to us mature adults. The nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah. But the people who should have known better enter into relationship with a man who is bent on destroying the work that God was doing among them and was bent on ruining the work that they themselves had been a part of. So let's take it three ways. Let's take it in three ways. First, let's talk about friendships in this way. First, you should avoid foolish friends. Now, now most of us know this to be true. I'm just saying it by way of reminding you of what you already know. Bad friends affect you. Adrian Rogers said it like this, bad friends are bad decisions. Bad friends are bad decisions. So we should avoid foolish friendships. We should avoid friendships that undercut our relationship with God. We should avoid friendships that undercut the sanctification that God is doing in us. We should avoid friendships that pull us, not in directions of godliness and holiness, but that pull us away from that. Proverbs chapter 13, verse number 20. Write this down. You can read it for homework tonight. Proverbs chapter 13, verse number 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. So you hear what Solomon is saying? There's a, there's a direct connection between the friendships that you have and make and your own flourishing. If your friendships are wise, 
you'll be wise. But if your friendships are foolish, you will also be foolish. There's a direct connection. There, there are, or, or there is a, a lie that we love to believe about ourselves. And, and we love to believe that we are self-made people. That we're autonomous in our decision making. But the reality is that we are not. We are not self-made. We are, we are constantly consuming voices. We're constantly consuming lifestyles. We're constantly listening to individuals. And all of that is shaping us. It's molding and making us in some kind of a way. And that is what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying the friends you have, the voices you listen to, the people you hang around, they are affecting you. They're shaping you. They're making you. And a bad friend is a bad decision in waiting. That's what he's saying. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse number 24, 25, read this one tonight as well. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. So we conform to the people that we are constantly around. That is what Solomon is teaching his son. We conform to the people that we are constantly around. If you are around someone who is constantly grumpy, guess what you will become? Not happy. Grumpy. If you are around someone who is constantly angry, Guess what you will become? You will learn his ways. That's what Solomon says. You will learn his ways. You will go and do likewise. You will learn to deal with the problems of your life the same way that you saw that person deal with the problems in their life. This is, this is heavy as it relates to our parenting, is it not? That the areas that our children frustrate us the most are the areas where they mimic us. The things that drive me so angry about my kids are when they're doing the exact same things that I know I should not be doing. Where did they learn it? Their mother. That's who they learned it from. No, they learned it from me. You find yourself with an immoral person, you will become an immoral individual. You find yourself with an angry person, you will conform to their anger. You find yourself with a gossip or a slanderer, you will find yourself gossiping and slandering. This is what is being taught to us here. Here are the nobles of Judah, the men who should have known better. They should have avoided the likes of Tobiah. And yet here they are swearing themselves unto him. Entering into relationship with someone like him. One pastor says there, there are three choices you'll make in your life. The God that you choose will determine your eternal happiness. The spouse that you choose will determine your marital happiness. 
and the friends you choose will determine your social happiness. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 19, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. So avoid foolish friends. Avoid foolish friends. Second, cultivate enduring friendships. Cultivate enduring friendships. So friends are not just essential for morality, life choices, and decisions. Friends are also essential for our endurance. You, you cannot survive in this world without a faithful friend. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs chapter 18, verse number 24. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. It's an interesting verse. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. We've talked on this verse before. If you want a friend, be a friend. If you want a friend, be a friend. So in, what Solomon is saying is, in order to find a good friend, go and be a good friend, and you'll have a good friendship. So, so the reason why some people don't have good friendships is because they're not a good friend. You need to understand this. You do not take friendships. You make friendships. So a friend is not someone that you can just go and kidnap. Ha ha, you're going to be my friend and you're going to like it. No, you're a weirdo. You're probably going to get a restraining order called on you. That is not how that works. You can't just go take a friend. You make friends. You, you, look, here's what he says. For a man to have friends, he must, here's the word, show himself friendly. But that's not the only application for that verse. The application for that verse, you want a friend, be a friend. That's, of course, an application, and I think it's, an, I think it's a correct one. But another application for that verse is simply this. Friends require friendliness. For a man that hath friends, he must do what? Show himself friendly. So in order for us to have friendship, we must enter into the requirement for friendship. Let me, let me, let me say it like this. There is a difference between a friend and a friendship. So, some people say, well, you know, Pastor, I don't, I don't have a problem with friends. I have lots of friends, and I have 727 friends on Facebook. They're all my friends. Well, they might be your friend, but you do not have a relationship with them. 
It's not a friendship. You understand? There's a difference between a friend and a friendship. If, if you're lucky in this life, you get a handful of true friendships. You'll get a handful of people in your life who you can say they meet the biblical qualification of a brother loving at all times, of a brother in adversity, of a companion along the way, as a wise person making me wiser as a result. You get a handful of those kind of people in your whole life. How many friends will you have in your whole life? How many acquaintances will you have? How many names will you know? How many people will you have in your phone book? How many followers will you have on social media? Well, that's probably countless. But we need to distinguish between that's a friend, that's a person that I'm attached to, that's a person that I have some kind of common ground with, that's a person that I... My circle runs in their circle at some... But that's not what biblical friendship is. You remember, uh, remember when you were at school, you were a little kid at school, and you got in a fight with you know, your friends in your class? And you're arguing on the playground, and you said, well, you're not my friend anymore. Remember that? Some of you, that happened just last week with some of you. You know what you're saying? You're, you're saying, we don't actually have relationship. But what you're saying is, you're not going to run in my circle. You're not going to be attached to me. You're, you're not in my tribe. You're not my people. That's what you, you, I, I'm not a supporter of you. You're not a supporter of me. We are not, we're not friends anymore. Well, that's altogether different than a friendship. Simply being a friend is contractual. I do this, you do that. I say this, you say that. I see you at church, I say hi, you say hi back. I say, how was your day? You say, good. And then we go our way. And we're friends. Yeah, but there's no meaningful, deep, covenantial relationship beyond the attachment that's a friend, but it's not friendship. Friendship is not a contract. Friendship is a covenant. Fr friendship is not just, well, we're on good terms with each other. Friendship is saying, no, 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 we're not just on good terms. We enjoy one another's company. It's, it's safe to communicate uh, dreams or desires. It's, it's a place where if a mistake is made, it's, it's addressed, but it's judgment free. Friendship is a lasting relationship beyond time, beyond trials, beyond trouble. And what I'm telling you is you get a handful of those in your whole life. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So in order for the friend to wound me, 
him and I have to have a relationship together that he feels the confidence and has the permission that he can speak harsh things which may seem as if they're wounding, but he can speak them to me because he knows it's for my good. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But that relationship is predicated on what? That, that wounding is predicated on a relationship underneath that says, listen, I'm going to tell you this, but I love you and I'm telling you it because I love you. Well, that doesn't happen with your friends on Facebook. No one's ever had that encounter on Facebook and gone, you're right, I'm changing my ways right now. No, you know what they do? Block. That's what they do. Cancel, whatever, whatever you do on Facebook, I don't know what you do. Well, ignore, get rid of, delete, unfriend. <laughs> okay, thank you. No, no. Friendship is lasting relationship. Who's your, who's your friendship with? There are a few relationships that you get in this life which last a lifetime. You should cherish them. You should value them. You should love them. You should support them. You should do everything you can to nurture them. There are some relationships where distance and time and troubles change. They change the relationship. There are some relationships where distance, time, troubles, trials, they don't change anything about the relationship. The relationship is strong enough to handle it. But the measure of the relationship is not seen when we're all in the same circle. We're all attached to the same thing. We all agree with one another. The strength of the relationship is seen when there's trouble or there's distance or there's trials or there's a wounding that has to happen. And the relationship still stays the same. That is true biblical friendship. And you only get a few of those in your whole life. So you should cherish them and you should nurture them and you should value them. And you should pour into them. There are some relationships in this life that God brings to you for a reason and a season. There are some people that God brings into your life for a reason and a season, and once the reason is completed, and once the season is completed, then that person moves on. It doesn't mean that they were accidental people in your life. It doesn't mean that they weren't contributing to your life. It simply means they were there for a season and a reason, and that season and reason are over. And so God has moved them for something else. God has completed in you the work that he wanted, and now you are to move on as well. So we are to avoid foolish friends. We are to cultivate enduring friendships. Third, we are to find honest friends. Look, look, look at the text of so verse 19. They reported his good deeds before me. They uttered my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to put me in fear. It's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't say, they reported Tobiah's deeds before me. They uttered my words before him. That's not what it says. 
It doesn't say, and they reported his good deeds before me, and they uttered my good words to him. That's not what it says. No, no, no. They only reported his good deeds, and they simply uttered Nehemiah's words. You see? They were not honest friendships. The goal of friendship is not simply to avoid foolishness. The goal of friendship is to be the kind of friend, have the kind of relationship where you are bringing your friends into godliness, holiness, Christ-likeness, obedience to the word of God, where you're stirring up in them love and good works, where you're provoking in them righteousness and holiness, where you're edifying, you're building something in them. You're not simply smashing and breaking something, but you're building something in them so that they are built up, the Bible says, in order to do the good work that God has given them to do. Foolish friends have no intention of making us more like Jesus. Foolish friends have no intention of bringing us down the path of godliness. Foolish friends are only interested in confusing and distracting and lying and manipulating. And you can only be my friend if you agree with me that they're not our friends. Ready? You're going to be that? Oh, then you're not my friend. If you, don't. If you like them, you can't like me. You see? You have to find honest friends. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19. He that goeth about as a talebearer revealeth secrets. Therefore, meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. My mom used to always say, uh, someone who talks to you about others talks to others about you. For the Christian, gossip, slander, these things are not just foolish. These things are sinful. These things are wrong. These things are not the way of Jesus. So be the type of friend who is willing to be honest with someone. Be the type of friend who's willing to want for them godliness and holiness and Christ-likeness. Be the kind of friend who's willing to tell the truth, even if it means... We have to say things that are uncomfortable. We ought to surround ourselves with these kind of people. My question for you is not, are you the kind of person that's going around and telling everybody the truth about them? We all love to think about ourselves like that. Well, I'm just a truth teller. You know. We love to think about ourselves like that. I'm not asking you if you are going around telling everybody else the truth about them. I'm asking you this. Who tells you the truth about you? Because this is the kind of sermon we listen to and we go, oh, I wish so-and-so heard this sermon. Because then they would understand why I'm always getting on their case and telling them they're a terrible individual. And that's the wrong way to listen to the sermon. That's the wrong way to listen to the sermon. The right way to listen to the sermon is, do I have someone in my life that I have given them the permission 
to speak the truth to me. Even if it's going to wound me and even if they know I'm not going to like it. We ought to surround ourselves with people who will do that. Who will tell us what we need to hear, not simply what we want to hear. Oftentimes when I'm counseling young couples, they'll come in the office, they'll say, oh, we're going to get married. I'll say, oh, fantastic. Why, why, do you, why do you want to get married? Oh, we're in love. Oh, really? How do you know you're in love? It always goes like this. Oh, we're in love because we just enjoy one another. We never fight. We just always smile. Always smile, never fight, enjoy one another. Get married and that's gone. And I, I generally respond to them something like this. So you have a superficial relationship. Not a real relationship. Not a relationship where you can be honest. Not a relationship where you can tell the truth. Amanda and I were going through our, our premarital counseling with one of our assistant pastors at the church we were a part of at the time. And we went to three or four sessions and he was helping us with different struggles that we were having. And he was helping us understand, like, you know, when's a good time to fight? When's the, like, how do you have a good fight as a couple? You know, how do you navigate difficult conversations? And Amanda and I had just had an argument. We come into the meeting and he's like, you know, you, you, you shouldn't, you, would, you know, you don't want to be a, a, a person who's pride. Only by pride comes contention. So if you have contention, you're having fighting, it's because pride and arrogance has entered the relationship in some way. I, am, I said, man, we were just fighting. We were just doing this. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't get married. Maybe this isn't going to work. Maybe we're just, you know, we're both just real like A-plus type people. We're both strong-willed. Her more than me. He said, well, Dave, I'll tell you this. He said, I can't tell you if you're supposed to be married or not to Amanda, but I can tell you you'll fight with someone for the rest of your life. The question is, do you want to fight with Amanda? And I said, well, I, I guess. You know, Amanda and I have the same fight. We'll be married 22 years this coming June. We have, we have the same fight over and over again. It's just less often. We used to have the fight like every other week. Now it's like every three weeks. You, you know what we've learned, though, as, as a couple? We've learned how to fight fairly. We've learned what's allowed to be said, what's not allowed to be said. You remind me of your mother. Because that's not good. Don't say that. We've learned to fight. We've learned to fight fair. You, you, know, you know why that's important? That, that might sound strange, but, but here's why that's important. Because when you fight for something, what it means is you care. You value it. You cherish it. You, it's important to you. So sometimes in your friendships, fighting is necessary. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about consistently fighting. 
I'm not, I'm not talking about you never have a moment of peace. I'm not talking about fighting unfairly. But what, I, but what I am talking about is I'm talking about giving someone the permission to wound you even if you don't want to hear it because you know you need it. Spent uh, some of my high school years playing basketball. We'd go to these summer camps, this hot gym, no air conditioning. Felt like 127 degrees in there. A whole week of doing nothing but playing basketball. Inevitably, throughout the week, there would always be one or two fights. Somebody would push somebody, somebody would push somebody else. You know what the fights from the players meant? It meant they cared. They didn't want to lose. They, they had a drive, a, a, a conviction, a determination. I'm not going to lose. And so they would respond that way. You, you have people in your life like that? You have people in your life who are, you are cultivating a friendship with? I'm not talking about having someone in your life who completely agrees with you about everything and sees it your way. I'm talking about a true, meaningful friendship. Find honest friends. Cultivate those friendships and avoid foolishness. This is what the people in Nehemiah chapter 6, this is what they do not do. And as a result, you know what happens? You get to chapter 13, and Tobiah, the enemy, has moved in. He's taken up residence. His work, which was against and in opposition to the work of God and the good work of the people of Jerusalem, didn't simply happen outside the wall. It happened inside of the wall because of their friendship with him. Choose your friends wisely.